Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com slash suryadas. Welcome, Sally, Swami Durgananda, dear friend and colleague. Uh, it's so nice to be with you, Surya Lamaji. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, all of you friends and brothers and sisters and others to this Awakening Hour podcast here on the Ramdas Be Here Now Network. We're going to be talking today about yoga and meditation, Hinduism and Buddhism, and bringing the sacred fire down from the mountaintop. And I have here my guest and friend, we're going to be talking with Swami Durgananda, a tantric yogi and meditation teacher and author. And I hope that you guys will interact in one way or another, and finally, you know, be in touch and follow us up on iTunes, and in other ways. If you want to get these episodes of my podcast, you can go to the beherenow.com slash Suryadas online or subscribe at iTunes. And Swami Durgananda, or Sally, as we call her in, here in America, is a writer, a teacher of devotional contemplative tantra. She's somebody I send my own students to to study and learn about the other and related great traditions of wisdom and realization and opening the heart and enlightening the mind. She's a disciple of the great Indian saint and Swami Muktananda. She gives Awakened Heart Tantra workshops and retreats. And she's the author of books and columns such as Awakening Shakti, Meditation for the Love of It, and Doorways to the Infinite. And here we have Sally Durgananda. Nice to see you again. And to talk about this subject, and so many people today are doing meditating and yoga with or without the ism, with or without Buddhism or Hinduism, with God, without God, in between, not knowing. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful time to be awakening together, awakening now. It certainly is. It's, a, it's such an extraordinarily expansive time as, as meditation really comes, you know, this practice which has seemed so esoteric for so many centuries is suddenly becoming, I, we can only call it mainstream. And to, you know, to be part of that revolution for all the years that we have been and watch it exploding as it is now is, is very gratifying. And, you know, also of course, very interesting in other ways. It really is exploding yeah. and it's a yeah. revolution and also consciousness evolution and um, opening the heart, awakening the mind, whatever you call it, by any other name. It's just so sweet. Yes, it is. It is. It is. And of course, for you and I, there's a, a kind of secret knowing that no matter what we're doing in life, no matter what is going on in our day-to-day -day lives or in our relational lives or in our work lives, that that awakening is really the core, the juice, the inner meaning of what our lives are about, right? So how fabulous that so many other people are are having that recognition. 
Well, a lot of these things are verging on a fad, not to yes, criticize true. that. People are getting into it. We ourselves have spent our entire adult lives in these practice traditions, Sally, um, you over 40 years, and uh, moi aussi. And um, now mindfulness, yoga, vegetarianism, or complementary healing, qigong and tai chi and so on, is sweeping the country, kirtan, devotional chanting. Krishnadas is doing a great job spreading that, uh, and so on. So we could get into talking about, you know, the popularization and the pros and cons. We could also talk about how wonderful it is that there's a, some kind of spiritual renaissance reawakening. But first, I want to uh, follow up on this theme, just swooping in from the bigger perspective, Buddhism and Hinduism, theism and non-theism, meditation and yoga, etc., um, bhakti or devotion, and jnana or wisdom realization, which are seemingly different paths, but to us, to you and I, not separate. Your thoughts? Well, I think, first of all, the, my understanding, which I think is very similar to yours, is that the, the core reality of this universe, of this world, is when you really get down to the deepest core of experience, past thoughts, past conditioning, you know, past all the definitions that we create or have created for us by society, there is this core experience of awareness that of just a pure experiencing knowingness that has the, the inner nature of, of loving, you know, of affection, of acceptance. You know, there, the word love is kind of loaded for some of us. Yes. But, but the, so if our understanding is that what we want to find in life is the absolute deep center of our own reality and the place that connects us to others, probably we're going to, we're going to progress on the path by getting to know the pure awareness that is present in all states. And we're, and as that deepens, we're going to start to experience that inside that awareness is love. So these, these two paths, these, you know, these two huge paths that, that in sectarian traditions have been sometimes seen as separate, that is the path of love or devotion or bhakti and the path of, of, uh, of knowing your awareness as prior to and separate from all your thoughts and ideas, um, they, it, it often, often seems that people have a certain predisposition towards one path or another according to our temperament. So, so some people go in you know, with the idea that let's deconstruct all these ideas that we have about ourselves until we get down to the real nitty-gritty, which is awareness or emptiness, as, as, um, as you Buddhists tend to say, although we know you don't mean empty is empty. And then the people who, who are you know, really emotionally based and whose doorway into the core of themselves is through a, a kind of experience of ecstasy or juiciness or love, which is, of course, in the traditions, often centered on a personal deity, on a form of theistic divinity. And, you know, all the great religions uh, have, have some sort of devotional aspect to them. So, and, um, and all the great spiritual traditions insist, in the end, that the truth is 
without form. So somehow, I think for you and certainly for me, the path has really been about recognizing that the two are totally interconnected, like yin and yang. Yes, inseparability. Um, that is one of the meanings of the word tantra. And yeah. uh, but we could, you know, go into that. That's a big subject. But back to the people have different spiritual personalities or backgrounds or predilections. I think that's a very important point. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, people wonder if they shouldn't follow the leader, the, the teacher, the charismatic leader, and who, too, who often, maybe even too often, says, you know, my way is the best way or my way or the highway, when in fact yeah. it's just one, you know, lane in the great way. Yeah, so great true. Highway. So true, and and, and the, you know there are different courses for different horses. So there's the devotional, emotional type uh, who rely on grace and prayer, and then there's the gyan, the knowledge based or philosophical awareness, wisdom developing kind of type. And there's also perhaps another type I don't know the yoga type, more physical, yeah, yeah. embodied energy, kundalini, chi, and so on. And there may be other types, but um, I think it's important to be authentic and find our way. And uh, that's been good for me. I had, you know, my first guru was Nim Karoli Baba, and this is the Be Here Now Network. Ramdas started, so we honor him. Nim Karoli Baba he gave my name Surya Das and Ramdas and Krishna Das and all the Das brothers, mm -hmm. and others who uh, teach on this uh, network. And um, he was opened my heart. I think without. The bhakti side, the devotional, the grace, the gratitude, the surrender, the beyond the intellect side, I would be a very dry kind of desiccated Buddhist <laughs> scholar and translator and um, wouldn't want that. Wouldn't want that. <laughs> because after all, what is life without the open heart? Exactly. Yeah. Viva yeah. la Dharma, viva la Buddha, you know, Zorba yeah. the Buddha. That is the essence yeah. of Tantra, is joy and life, and not just diluted mm, lower animalistic life, but putting right. our animalistic side in service of the highest, then we ourselves become more divine or find our divinity right here in the nitty-gritty world, which again, <laughs> yeah. I think is the image yeah. of Tantra. The total image of Tantra, the understanding that, that, that the sacred is in every particle of everything, so we can literally find the doorways into sacred expansion through anything. Um, uh, so let's talk about the love side, the devotion side. I'd love you know, to. Okay, I, I think one of the things that we notice in our society is that in general, the the knowledge aspect of spirituality or the, the pure meditative, or, you know, if you're, if you're a hatha yogi, the, you know, the, the embodiment part, the, the physical part, because it, it does not, require a religious orientation is much easier for a secular Western educated um, postmodernist uh, postmodernist yeah to enter into thank you uh, at, whereas the devotional paths I know for me uh, I, I I grew up in a you know kind of a humanist atheist left-wing socialist family um, both of my parents were refugees from um, you know, from American religious traditions. Uh, and, you know, there, there was just an assumption that everything in life was in what you could make with your intellect or what you could make in your relationships. 
Uh, and so when I first became interested in spirituality, the idea that you would get involved on in a devotional path or that you would, you, know, you would get involved with a guru or with you know, a theistic ideal was, it just made me tremendously uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. In my in my first spiritual with my first spiritual teaching group, my friends and I used to say, "Oh my God, he's about to start using the G word," you know, which is <laughs> yeah, anything but that. Anything but that, you know, we can we can deal with any sort of esoteric <laughs> knowledge, but not with that, not with not with the God idea. And like you, I you know I had had my first kind of sustained awakening through my teacher, Swami Muktananda, who was um, very much like Neem Karoli in that he, he was, he absolutely took for granted that devotion, that love for divine, love for the sacred, you know, love for his chosen form of the divine was utterly crucial and intrinsic to human life. And it was really because he, he loved God so much mm. and talked about God so much that I started to actually, first of all, soften to the thought that there might actually be such thing as such a thing as a as a um, higher power. Uh, and because being around him, I was having the experience of there being this presence in in the air and the atmosphere, you know, in myself that was loving, that was tender, that was actually ecstatic, and that seemed to have nothing to do. Um, with my ordinary ideas of personhood. So I kind of got inculcated into not the idea of God, but the actual felt experience mm. of presence and, uh, and discovered, of course, as I know you know, that, that when we're aware of the world and our bodies and the people around us as being kind of suffused with, with the sense of presence, as they call it now, and grace there's a magic in it and a delight in it that as you say it just it just keeps you it's something that you can turn to and take refuge in that keeps you from being bored with life uh in a very deep way so yes let's hear it for the love path for the devotional path well thank god for the dharma thank That's god what I was for saying in the past yeah. thank god for buddhism to make it a funny joke kind of a Oxymoron, since Take Buddhists are non-theists the... generally. But if we were going to go more <laughs> into the seriosity of it all um, and talk truthiness, as Colbert calls it, I don't think Buddhists understand this properly about the higher power and non-theism. Actually, it seems yeah. to me if you're going to talk in English to us Judeo-Christian or secular scientistic, whatever we are, background, overeducated people on what I lovingly call the upper middle path <laughs> without too much sacrifice or renunciation um, or hardship except of our own making usually. If we're going to talk about the higher power, I think there is a higher power in Buddhism too. We just don't think of it as a creator god, a Jehovah, yeah. a, a, an old man with a beard, uh, a separate from us absolute being. The higher, if I could speculate, the higher power in Buddhism is awareness with a capital A, not just yeah. personal awareness or small mind, but what Zen calls big mind or Buddha mind with a capital M. So yeah. it's not just mind, it's chitta, bodhicitta. So the higher awareness and yeah. the higher power in Buddhism is awakened awareness, which is innate in all of us. 
just like the Godhead or the inner light, the spark of divinity, the Christos, innate in all of us. So without conflating or mixing everything together in one blenderizer, I think that we, you know, Buddhist practitioners could be more humble about our understanding about theism and non-theism and understand we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the triple gen, that's our higher power. We find refuge yeah. and reliance just like theists in God right. and Torah and the Bhagavad Gita and the scriptures, the Vedas. I know the Vedas are very important in your tantric Shaivite tradition. And we Buddhists also have our higher power. Just that, again, I also didn't believe, I, I grew up in a Jewish family in Long Island, New York. I was by mitzvah. I'm Jewish on my parents' side, as Ram Dass always used to joke. But I'm Buddhist <laughs> by inclination and choice. Who knows? And maybe by past lives, as my Tibetan friends tell me. But I found something myself that was beyond me. Yeah. And that's the higher power, whatever you call it. It is infinitely sweeter than any yeah. name can express. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautifully said. Us Bujus and Hindus. Yeah. <laughs> etc. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and of course. Aware, enlightened awareness, awake awareness, is really at the heart of, of all the great mystical traditions, you know, including mystical Judaism, when you really get right down to it. So I agree with you that, that when you study religious traditions, and especially when you study the, the, the writings of great realized awake human beings, you find that they're talk, always talking about the same thing. They're always talking about this ineffable impersonal and yet completely intimate presence that's that is your that is your own awakened mind your own expanded yes. mind i wouldn't yeah. say impersonal i call it transpersonal transpersonal is a better word yeah integral or i don't know complete to me but i think that's very important and you know that's why we love the mystic poets and you know the sufi saints and you know who's the most popular best-selling poet in america today rumi i know the sufi saint famous? Yeah. yeah. And what is yeah. radical Islam doing to the Sufi sect today? Wiping very, it out. Wiping it out and very deliberately wiping it out. So is... that's of concern to all of us. But fundamentalist religion or extreme views, not to mention the violence and all that um, prejudice. But I think that fundamentalist or dogmatic or intolerant streak is in all of us. And um, at least I feel incumbent upon me to root it out of my mind not just to look yeah. at it outside and say bad naughty no right 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 not not to put it outside yeah. yourself but right. to really realize well it's interesting um one of the great contemporary spiritual thinkers Swami Vivekananda whom I know you know who in a certain sense brought uh non-dual Hinduism that is the you know the Hindu dharma that that really sees the the utter absolute connectedness and everything one of the things he used to say about devotional traditions is that their shadow side is fanaticism. Mm. So, and I, I, I think that that's what you're talking about, that when we fall in love with a tradition, and especially at, at certain stages of consciousness, and I certainly went through my own fanatic period, you know. In, in, Me too. In, yeah, so we all. And loved it. And loved it. It's so, <laughs> feel so Me and my friends. Yeah. Together. Know, yeah. So great, and uh, and everybody else, nobody else has a clue about reality, and you're just yeah. you're so full of you know how smart you are and how much you know, and then little by little over the course of time, um, 
you realize, oh, wait a minute, everybody else and every other tradition feels that way about their tradition. So, you know, you start asking those, those obvious questions and then suddenly you're no longer a fundamentalist. And, uh, and then often the more fundamentalist members of your own community are going, you're a heretic. Yes. As mystics often find themselves being called heretics. But um, if you, I love Swami Vivekananda's formulation because then you can look at these beautiful traditions like Christian, the Christian tradition, which is such a beautiful, beautiful, powerful, sophisticated, you know, just as sophisticated as Buddhism or Hinduism and it's mystical Islam. It's, it's just extraordinarily subtle and gorgeous. And then there, then there's fundamentalist Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism now in places like Burma, yes. Myanmar, sorry, uh, that that really mobilizes the you know the fear forces the, the fear and the desire for security. So religion then becomes um, everything that you know that modernists objected to about it. it you know it becomes a right. force a force for contraction. And um, so people say I'm spiritual but not religious because religion has such a bad name. But what it really is that gives religion a bad name is this fanatical fundamental tendency in human beings, you know, the kind of ethnocentric tendency to make uh, you and your friends the only right people in the universe. And I think one of the things I love about you and about, you know, so many of the, the people of our generation who kind of went into the Eastern world and practiced intensely in those traditions and then kind of came back to to our postmodern life and then, you know, since then have been trying to integrate it and, you know, and really find the universal truths in Buddhism or in, or in the Indian Tantra, uh, is that there, is it, we've been on a journey, every single piece of which has been so, you know, so all-inclusive and all-encompassing, and if which has included enormous doubt. I know, at least it has for me, you know, there's, at, at a certain point, I realized, you know, actually, I don't really believe in anything. You know, I, I, at what I, you know, what I know, you know, is, is my own, my own subtlest experience, and the way in which that experience that is real for me Kind of jibes with the words of people who, who have, have, um, who've come to a place of real awakening and described it. And I, I think what we find is that the more our experience deepens, the more we begin to understand, you know, what these amazing beings over the centuries have said. I mean, you know, like a statement like, like, my I, my inner I-ness is God, or. You know, my mind mm -hmm. is the Buddha mind, which sounds like a slogan. And then one day, right, you just you just have a recognition that what I call God is my own, you know, swirling, glimmering awareness expanded, um, and it's it's so it becomes so intimate and real. Um, beautiful. Yes. Many people today seem to shy away from thoughts like that about God or mysticism or that they could be that 
and put it outside, of course, in generally thinking about it as something you realize or find after you die and go to heaven or in other ways in, in various paths, you know, like Buddhism after many lifetimes of, as I call it, schlepping to enlightenment, <laughs> like spiritual trench warfare, pulling a long sled of your extra baggage through the mud. But of course, in Tantra and in Vajrayana Buddhism, the diamond path of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, I'm part of that lineage, just like you're part of the Tantric Shaivite Hindu lineage, Vedanta lineage. In the in these great lineages, there is the also the understanding of a wakefulness now, yeah. the direct portal. Yeah. It's now or never, as always, and not waiting, and living fully now and seeing through the illusion of separateness, seeing through our bubble-like confines and recognizing the sea that we're already part of. We don't have to burst the bubble to return to the sea of mm. wholeness or oneness or godliness mm. or whatever you call it. So we call it, you know, seeing through yourself is seeing Buddha or awakening to the true Buddha within. And this is a universal message, of course, or the Christos within, or the Godhead. But this is heresy. Saints have been crucified for yeah. it in different religions and places. But now coming down to earth, and I know you're a teacher, you write a column for, well, you wrote a column for New Age Journal, the Wisdom column for many years, which I Yo recommend. Yoga, yoga Journal. Yoga Journal. Right. You can see how. Um, what a wide consciousness you have. <laughs> what's happening. All... What's happening to my memory banks. Fortunately, I don't rely on just the mind anymore. Um, <laughs> you know how to talk today, and you have students and disciples, uh, East and West, just like I do, Sally. My young colleague here, Kelly Rago, who I had on my first podcast and who um, is a filmmaker and writer and works for the Be Here Now Network, she asked about earnestness and sincerity. She said so many people, you know, first there was the existential age of God is dead, and then there's the age of irony of the Gen X and all. And uh, now people are so leery of earnestness, of sincerity. And you know and I know as lineage holders and members, upholders of these timeless and ancient but wonderful universal timeless lineages, Sally, that sincerity is all, authenticity is all. It's hard to define. Yeah, it so is. So how, how, how do we balance being sincere and earnest but not being, like she was saying, shy or ashamed to show mm. her spiritual stripes yeah. in public she, did, in her cool, artistic, fashionista, 32-year-old you know, world? Yeah. Although I, one of the thing I'm, things I'm noticing about the cool artistic fashionistas in their early 30s, and the, especially the younger millennials, is that there, there is, you know, much more so in this generation than in the last generation, an intense desire for sincerity and authenticity. And I, you know, and I, I think we see it in the way we present ourselves in the world, you know, that we even see it in politics. As, as I've, as you know, during the Democratic primary, just watching the the intensity and the intense sincerity of mm -hmm. young, of, yeah. of the of the young people, yes. and and I I also see it in you know in the, in the young people who are people I meet in yoga studios in Los Angeles and San Francisco, um, who have this incredible desire to, you know, to find a path for themselves, and when they find it. With all, or when they feel they've found it, it you know, they, they want to just throw themselves into it completely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a whole phenomenon in the yoga world of, 
you you take some yoga classes, you fall in love with yoga, and then you decide you're going to quit your job and be a yoga teacher because you want to do full time yeah, full time practice, right. make it your life. And then, of course, as we know, there are all sorts of other issues arise. Um, but I do think that that when you've had a taste of who you can be, of what you can experience, the allure of that. Um, even if you're a cynic, even if you're an ironist, and God knows I am, you know, my, my natural, my mind, my natural mind is very much, oh, whatever, <laughs> you know, and very, very much ironic and um, skeptical. And yet, I, I think that for all of us, along with our natural skepticism and our, you know, especially our skepticism about, about belief, there's, there comes to be an experience of something in you that is way beyond belief that kind of knows or has a glimmer of, of what words, what ideas, what thoughts, what practices are actually going to make you feel real meaning and, and real, real joy. And once you find that, then if you're just sincere about staying connected, to that which gives you a, a sense of authenticity and joy and connectedness, then it's probably going to take you along the path, even if you don't call it spirituality. Um, as long as you can keep from falling in between the, you know, the twin rock, the rock and the hard place of fanatical belief and fanatical right. skepticism. Right. Yeah, it's, that's the upper middle path. <laughs> uh, I try to find the balance of the middle path. I think the middle way is Buddha's greatest teaching, not emptiness, yeah. mindfulness, loving kindness, nonviolence, uh, awareness, cultivation, etc. But the middle way, not falling into this. The skill or in Caribidus, the rocket, not but the hard yeah, place the of, you know, all or nothing, yeah. always and never, black yeah. and white thinking. Austerity on one extreme and then indulgence on the other. There's so many lanes in the middle. It's not just a razor's edge down the highway in the middle, yeah. like a yellow line, but so many lanes in the highway of awakening. But I try to be aware and not fall into the extremes, like on one side, nihilism, nothing matters, or extreme cynicism, skepticism, low yeah. doubt, next investigation, questioning is important, but it's extreme cynicism and, you know, yeah. Acerbic skepticism could be another problem. On one hand, nihilism, and on the other hand, materialism. Yeah. Or, or it, only what's real is what we can weigh or or see or measure. Yeah. So today, um, earnestness may be a little bit looked down on in sincerity in um, some intellectual circles. But for those of us who are in the path, uh, I, I often people ask me, and I like to think about finding a balance between the bhakti or the way of grace and surrender and the wisdom of allowing and letting go, which means letting come and go, letting be, not just throwing things away yeah. on one hand. And on the other hand, effort, yeah. intention and attention to priorities and focusing and channeling, your energy, channeling one's energy and bodhicitta or aspiration and awakefulness in let's call it a positive direction, meaning let's say at least your chosen and skillful direction. So what do you think about balancing this effort and effortless, the doing and being, the grace or surrender approach that we post, we modern secular people struggle with 
surrendering to God, surrendering to a guru, surrendering to God's will, surrendering to karma on one hand, yeah. to grace, opening to grace, saying thank you for whatever's given, as it says in the Christian prayers. And on the other hand, effort, yeah. energy, yeah. motivation, the altruistic aspiration for enlightenment, as we call it in Tibetan Buddhism. The Dalai Lama always talks about this, the priceless bodhicitta, seeking universal liberation, not just one's own feeling better. How do we balance that great effort that seems to be required in our endangered world today? Yeah, it's yes, that's beautifully put. And, and extremely, I think I would say that is the path, you know, that there's a there's a wonderful analogy, you know, which I know you're familiar with about how when a pilot is flying back in the day when the pilot actually flew the plane. <laughs> now I understand it's done by AI. So, but, you know, it was not like you could set a straight course from San Francisco to mm -hmm. New York. You're always doing, you know, error, correcting errors. Yeah. So. So, and I think for the spiritual journey, it's a constant process of error correction, right? So you, you go off in this direction, you go, oh my God, I'm being carried by the, I'm totally accepted by the universe, which is a wonderful realization. And you go, ah, doesn't matter what I do, there's this presence, it's upholding me. And you bask in it for a while, and then you notice that, you know, you're getting very sleepy and lazy and passive, you know, passive and also probably falling into your tendencies and... Mm -hmm. So then, you know, then there's the error correction necessity that and it usually means, okay, I have to make some intense effort here. You know, whatever, whatever it is, I have to stop smoking and, you know, give up drinking 20 cups of coffee a day, uh, get in my exercise program and actually sit for meditation or, you know, keep a schedule and, and, and look at my mind, look at where I'm, where I'm, you know, letting my mind take me and begin, as you say, to create positive aspirations, uh, which I think is one of the beautiful, beautiful um, teachings of Buddhism, the idea that, that you not only create positive aspiration, but you actually, you actually ask the universe to help you create positive aspiration. And, and I think that's, that's been the key for me, you know, to, to set an intention that is the highest I can manage in any given moment. And, uh, and then to ask for help, mm without, because I know that I've come to realize I can't do it myself, and yet there's a certain, and yet unless I make, you know, genuine personal moment-by-moment -moment effort towards the positive, that, that even though life becomes full of miracles at a certain point, it's all, it's all kind of so what if you're not channeling the energy that's given to you towards altruistic enlightenment, beautiful phrase, and towards helping, towards serving, towards, you know, towards giving back. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a moment by moment thing. Yes. Well, a wise person said that service or, you know, selfless service is the rent we pay for inhabiting this life in this world. So or of course we all, you know, stress that in our various um, traditions. Uh, just since we're talking about this, and on one hand, grace and surrender and the other effort, I'm glad you brought up, you know, about asking for help. Again, the um, hard-charging, alpha-achieving, <clears throat> dare I say, masculine energy. I'm sure it exists in females, too, in some cases. A person like myself or was um, 
growing up in New York, motor mind and motor mouth as I did in the 50s and 60s, probably like you. It's hard to surrender. It's hard to let go. And it's hard to ask for help. Yeah. So, yeah. Hindu, you know, the devotional traditions have a lot of physiistic traditions, asking for help, prayers, different kinds of prayers and so on. In the Buddhist tradition also, we have prayers and wishing well. In Tibetan Buddhism, especially devotional practice like guru yoga and other things, we're asking a goddess, a Buddhist goddess archetype, really Tara or other archetypes, principles of enlightenment, energies for help. And I find just speaking personally now, not theologically or Buddhologically, to be more precise, that asking for help really does lower my pride and aggression and arrogance and bring my ego lower and, uh, let's say, um, the less, the emptier I am, the more room there is for what's beyond me to I fill up, know. let's say, or the more room there is for other or better listener or better beer and less the doer, achiever, striver, and really habitual conditioned becomer and more the beer. And in the unconditioned here and now, it's like the ultimate therapy, just being here in the divine moment, nowness not sequential time, leaning forward into the future as to where I think I'm going to get. So I'm really into wordless prayer or contemplation, yeah. not just asking. Of course, we were talking about asking for help, but also when I don't know what to do, I put my head down and pray, and I don't even know what to ask for because my ego wants what it wants, but it's not necessarily what I need. Yeah. So I just put my head down and if do nothing more than that. That's already doing something. And see what happens uh, something comes in to fill the, the vacuum and it's not of my oh, ego doing sometimes it's a very marvelous guidance system or self-correcting or what should i call it? organic integral subtle yeah. inner healing yeah it's so from true. the beyondness that's in you know transcendent over each of us and imminent indwelling in each in each of us also yeah Right on. And one of the, I mean, I, I think one of the, let's call it tactics of devotional practice, um, because I do think that, that just as, you know, the practice of the knowledge-based traditions are very, very good at helping us deconstruct our minds and deconstruct our conditioning and our ideas so we can find the, the awareness that's free of it. In the same way, the devotional traditions I've found are filled with, you know, I would call them enlightened strategies for connecting yourself to, you know, to that 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 presence, that deep, that deep transcendent, you know, loving, protective embrace. You know, there's a, a contemporary teacher who says that that really it's all about just relaxing into presence and knowing that you're already held and already accepted. But for most of us, because we have all these issues with trust, and you know, our parenting was usually not exactly perfect um and conditioning and drivenness and, 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 and self-doubt whatever and yeah and the feelings of unworthiness Malcontent. and fear and you know whatever uh it's almost like for me it's you know for many years it's been a practice whenever i'm undertaking something that uh, that, that feels uh difficult or um you know or even in daily life i've discover that if I ask for help, not not from a particular, you know, 
personal theistic form, but just ask the universe for help and then do what I'm going to do with the feeling that, that there is subtle guidance that's going to come through. It, it, it then becomes possible for the, you know, the, the breakthroughs that I have and the, the um, successes that I have, if you will, they stop seeming like something that I created for myself and that I can lose. Mm-hmm. But they actually, it actually begins to feel as though there's a, there's a life living itself through me and through others. To, you know, and, and that practice of asking for help, of recognizing that being, that beingness that's helping us, actually I found trained me to let go and, uh, and realize that that there is a, a a guiding power inside the universe that that wants us to to love, that wants us to succeed, and that even when the path takes us through difficulty and struggle, uh, nonetheless, that you know, once you start contacting that that presence, you're going to feel taken care of. It's very you know, and I do think most of us have to train ourselves to recognize that. You know, as you say, because we are such strivers. Yes. Well, um, although you and I have both, and many of our friends, and not to mention our great teachers and lineage inspirations, still practicing explicit forms of meditation, of yoga, of prayer, of chanting, of energy work, two, three, four hours a day, right? I, I know you don't do any work or business until 10 in the morning, and we all get up early and me too. Um, and I've been meditating every day since 1971, although I learned in 68 when I was at college, but 71 since I went to a 10-day mindfulness course with Mr. Goenka, Gene in India. And um, it's great. I mean, meditation is truly a friend with benefits, as my young friends <laughs> like to say, or I, I like to tease them, and long-lasting benefits. But for many, they think they don't have time. You know, we don't have time today. I mean, my question is, where did all the time go? I think it's not time we lack, but priorities, awareness, and yeah. and the focus. I've written a whole book about this, Buddha Standard Time, yeah, Living in the Holy book. Now. Thank you. But um, <clears throat> how do you recommend to your students? Because people say to me, I can't be like the Dalai Lama, and I can't even be like Lama Suridas and Swami Durgananda Sali Kempton. They don't have to do anything else but meditate. And, um, and, 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 you know, if they're still doing it, what hope do I have? I just go to yoga class once or twice a week, and I say a few prayers with my kids at night, and I, I go to church or I, you know, do something one other time a week. But how do we, is enlightenment, is liberation, is total self-actualization, whatever you call it, you know, union with God possible today? And, of course, I always say yes, but the fine print is if you really – if you want it all, you have to give everything to it. And I don't mean yeah. in a square way that you have to give up your kids, your health, and your house. But you may, but not necessarily. But the real surrender and letting go is about surrendering egotism and separateness. And this takes some work and some practice. So we practice reconditioning before yeah. we get deconditioned. Yeah. So that's the gradual path along with the possibility of sudden awakening or wakefulness now. So what is it that motivates you to keep practicing, and how do you talk to your students about this and balance grace and gratitude and acceptance on the one hand, you know, letting go, letting be on the one hand, Sal, with 
motivation, intention, aspiration, stick-to-itiveness, resilience, and keeping going, keeping going, as you and I are still trucking together on the path here. I know people want to know. Well, I, I would say a couple of things. Um, first of all, I do think it's really important for people who who want to, you know, cultivate their their depth to to set aside a little bit of time every year when you do at least a five or ten day retreat because mm -hmm. they're really it really is important if you're going to get a get a, a deep glimpse of what's possible to quiet down and then. So and and to you know to have a kind of schedule in your life where you can be crazy busy all year long, but you know that you're going to you're going to go on retreat once or twice a year and let everything go in those moments. Um, this the second piece of it, I I mean I I ask people to meditate for at least fifteen minutes a day whenever they can find the time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be early in the morning mm -hmm. because because once you have a sense of what's there you know, you can, you learn to kind of go back there fairly quickly. Um, but, but beyond that, what has worked for me over the years is what I call um, walking around practices. And mm -hmm. I think that's something of what you mean by recondition, yeah. that you have sort of enlightened thoughts that, you know, I, I call them e-statements, enlightened statements, <laughs> you know, like, like the con same consciousness is in me as in that mm -hmm. is in that person I'm having a fight right. with. Like take you know, my like, seat here on the bus. Take my seat here whoever, on the bus. Older yeah. person or something. Yeah, or this person wants happiness as much as yeah. I do, or right. you know, like however you do it, you know, mm -hmm. thank you for coming, you know, thank you for showing me, you know, what an asshole I am, whatever it is, uh, so that you're you constantly you, you begin to have these. This, you know, sort of library of enlightened thoughts and enlightened actions that you you cultivate and you keep returning to. So, for a minute and a half, in the in the middle of a meeting, you know, or walking down the street, there's some little practice that you can do, and you may not plunge fully into the enlightened state, but your consciousness, your heart, is going to open up. What would love do now is actually one of my favorites. Um, so I, what I teach, hello. <laughs> yes, go on. I pushed the mute button. Oh, okay. So what I teach. That's a great one. What would love do? You know, I have a retreat center outside Austin, and the question in Austin is always, what will Willie do? <laughs> Meaning Willie Nelson. But the right. real question is, what would Jesus do? Which again circles yeah. back to what would love with a capital L yeah. and a small ego to... do? Yeah. Yeah, or as a psychotherapist I know says, if the Buddha got stuck, what would he do? You know, it's like, so you know, there are so many, there's so many little things you. I mean, one of my favorites is okay, in this moment when I'm feeling completely crazy, who am I without thoughts, without ideas, without emotions? You know, I mean, just for a moment, okay, who am I if I let go of all this? And there'll be an opening into space. And, you know, sometimes becoming aware of awareness is easier than becoming aware of love because, as we know, yes. uh, love can sometimes feel far away. Uh, but, it, you know, so I find over the years, after all these years of cultivation, and my, my guru used to say this, the reason we, you know, we read spiritual books and go to teachers is so that in a moment of crisis, one of these teachings will arise for us, you know, so that... When you're about, right. you know, or when, when you're dying, or when you're dying, and 
And I think that, that that's for busy people, for moment mm -hmm. to moment. Those, that's Beautiful. the solution. Like, how can you, you know, you forget everything uh, except what you have to do for five hours. And then at the end of five hours, something goes, oh, okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What would love do? Or who am I really? Or, you know, thank you for having this body, whatever it is, you know, um, inner smile, some little thing mm -hmm. that, you know, will, will bring you back to yourself. And as Gurdjieff says, I think it's really it is all about going back to yourself. So the integrating meditation in daily life, not just meditations, but yeah. enlightenment thoughts or integrated moments. Yeah, beautiful. I, I do that too. Like if I'm getting irritated at the wheel, I say who who is angry or right. what would love do or, you know, I look maybe they're trying to hurry to get to the hospital for giving birth or something and I'm just trying to hurry to get to the bookstore to, you know, buy a new book. <laughs> <laughs> And that they want and need the same as I do. And right now they might want and need that lane even more. Yeah, yeah. Because I realize as I grow older and, you know, I'm becoming a patronizing old guy now. So I'm always giving out life lessons and people are asking me also <laughs> for words of wisdom. It's embarrassing. But what can you do? Comes with the territory, right, Swamiji? Um, oh, does. If we knew a lot more about whatever we're being judgmental or reactive to, I'm sure we'd have a different reaction. Like we knew everything about the origins and history of the Middle East and their religions, I'm sure we'd have some different thoughts than we isolationist, what are we, exceptionalist Americans yeah. seem to have about the others. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just so that, that keeps me honest and more equanimous or patient. Yeah. At least listen a little better and think twice or three times before I respond. Yeah, the, the understanding of others' perspective is so transforming. So you just realize, oh, there, there are five different perspectives in this room, and none of them agree with mine. <laughs> but they all have—they must yeah. have some validity because right. here's a human being with this yes, perspective. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I feel like it's very important to uh, address this issue of daily practice and annual step away, spiritual pilgrimage or vacation or retreat, whatever you call it, and also every, bring it into um, everyday daily life. A lot of uh, people that I know um, come to me and they say that they've been doing this for years and they're not getting anywhere or that um, these traditional practices, you know, from foreign languages and foreign this and foreign that don't work and we should, you know, we need something, uh, you know, whether it's American Buddhism or, you know, the new a new psychology and you know these things are always evolving but there's a timeless and then there's a cultural aspect yeah. so what are your thoughts for example about the development these days of yoga for health and looks without uh, god or without the spiritual and wisdom realization part what are your thoughts about mindfulness for mere effectiveness or better business training or better sniper in the army to concentrate better without the ethical or the aspirational and the, the liberating, you know, the self-knowledge realization, insight development. So the pros and cons of this great popularization 
of these things that we love that we're so much part of that we've been apologists for bringing it to the West. And now it's so well accepted. We're kind of becoming the more conservative ones of trying to still keep, as I say, two feet in the old world and the old tradition while we also have two feet firmly here in the new. Yeah, I know. It's really paradoxical, isn't it? I, I, I you know, it's something that I think about I mean, about you left your ashram and your swami robes to uh, bring it a more modern dharma rather yeah. than saying a Hinduism, yeah, to absolutely. the world, as, as you've told me. Yeah. So yeah. why? How? Uh, well, first of all, as a, you know, as a Swami, as a person with the very, very privileged life of living in a spiritual community, uh, I realized that I couldn't authentically give people advice about how to live their lives mm -hmm. in this unbelievably challenging world without actually, you know, being out there being myself. Right, paying bills, you know, being involved in the various hassles of daily life. I, I have managed to recreate a sort of retreat <laughs> life for myself. I guess it's just how I am. Your karma. My, my karma. karma. But nonetheless, um, you know, I, I exactly. I, I know I you do. live in Carmel and the West Coast of California, but there must <laughs> some suffering must creep in even there. I mean, isn't it election year? It's election year. <laughs> exactly. It's election. Or I mean, drought or something. It, election year drought, you know, dicey uh, interactions with people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I mean, life, of course, is naturally full yeah. of struggle. But I, I think because I've taught so much in the yoga world, and I've come to have a lot of respect for, you know, some of the yoga teachers and students that I've known over the years, who really did begin, you know, as young people, you know, wanting to have beautiful bodies and Kind of experience the glamour mm -hmm. of yoga postures and, the, uh, you know, the, the health benefits. And because yoga and meditation make you feel better, mindfulness mm -hmm. makes you feel better. Um, and I, what I've seen is that for many of these people, you get to a certain point, you come to a dead end, and you go, okay, I've been I've been practicing mindfulness, 15 minutes a day for five years, and yes, you know, I I can work with my physical pain, and I'm better at concentrating, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, there's got to be something more. And it's in that there's got to be something more that that those practices then begin to become a doorway for people into those who are who, those who are ready for it. You know, the, the ethical systems, the metaphysical systems, the amazing gifts of, you know, deeper teachings that all these traditions have. And I, so I think it's a little bit like there's, I heard a Buddhist teacher once tell a story about, uh, a father who, whose whose house was on fire, and the kids were playing, and they wouldn't leave the house. And he said to them, "Okay, outside there's an you know there there's a pony cart full of presents for you." And so they all went rushing out of the house and were saved from the fire. And this teacher pointed out that this is really what religious spiritual traditions do. They say you're going to have these great you know gifts that you'll get from doing the practice. So and that gets you in the door. And once you're in the door, you start to recognize, okay, it's not enough for me to, you know, to, to, to have this much of it, because I, something in me is starting to open and I want more of it. So I think that's the hope that that's we the practice. Hope. Yes. And I, I just want to say one other thing. I, I do think that there's a, a danger in learning how to in mind control, in you know, uh, mm -hmm. in learning how to manipulate the mind such that you're then able to manipulate the world around you because, you know, a well-controlled mind with some, some, you know, kick-ass manipulative techniques 
which is not is not let's say mediated yeah. by right. a surrendered ego can cause a hell of a lot of trouble which is you well, know it's megalomania or megal other things. yeah yeah and so i do think that now that we're beginning to know the power of mind you know and the way that mind can change physical reality it becomes even more important that we that we really have contemplative and ethical methods for um, really checking ourselves. My orthopedic surgeon told me yesterday, and she's going to retire soon. She's a very experienced doc, and she and not and not a believer, you know, a um, what do you call it, a recovering Catholic or something. Right. right. Um, I'm in Boston, so needless to say, Irish, etc. But she told me she had this patient who was from India who was a dentist and his father had a compound fracture while he was visiting here and she had to operate on him almost in an emergency way mm -hmm. this old father from India yeah and he he refused medication I'm not advertising advocating this I'm not a Christian right. scientist I take Novocaine and other things Whatever when necessary <laughs> yeah but this is the orthopedic surgeons telling me She's not a true believer, a yogi, a meditator, a Christian scientist. She said he was a lifetime meditator from India. He had been brought up that way. He didn't need medication. He said he had dental work without it, and his son corroborated it. And she operated on him, and she gave him a few details, like her four-inch incision and the compound fracture oh. and the bone oh. and this oh. and that. And that, as she said, being a scientist, my doc, his blood pressure didn't go up, his eyelids didn't flutter, his brain weight, everything we monitored was fine. It wasn't just his subjective report that he could grin and bear it. Right. And and so she says, maybe there's something in this meditation of yours after all, Surya. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So I don't know if we're true believers. We're kind of like the uh, reluctant, we're like the reluctant skeptics that have been I don't know, dragged, kicking, screaming, praying, and singing down the path together. But it's so true. Loving and it every step and every kick of the way. Totally, and I, and also I think that the new neuroscience research, which mm -hmm. of course, I, what I say think about neuroscience actually is that they come up with all these these you know graphs and things that yeah. show us things that we already knew. Right. <laughs> just like just like monitoring yes. our common sense experience, but you know when you look at a brain scan of a of a meditator's brain and realize what effect that meditation is having on your ability to handle pain, uh, you know, you go, oh, well, maybe, maybe I should do this. Yes, maybe so, we should. Yeah, maybe Let, we should. Let's. Yes, let's. Let's, let's keep let's. doing it and awakening together. That's what, that's what I say. Thank God oh. for the Dharma and for you and for all who are listening and that we all share in this, this wealth together. I mean, it's really... These timeless wisdom traditions like an endangered natural resource. Yeah, yeah. Even in the over-information age, real tr transcendental wisdom or discerning wisdom is so rare. So let's do what we can yes. together. Let's do, together. let's do what we can. And thank you for all the work that you do in translating these teachings in thank such you. a way that people can really, really find them in, in such an immediate way. And you too, Sally, and your books and your websites and um, as I mentioned before people if you turn on to Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network if you click on that you'll find it BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Das. these podcasts will subscribe at iTunes and I'll be having other of my friends and colleagues like Beautiful. Swami Durgananda here 
Sally Kempton on, and we'll be sharing with you together and uh, going down the path together, I hope, or up or whatever it is. Together is very important, I I, I think, for us today. No one can do it alone, but no one's exempt from participating. We're all interconnected, right? Yes, exactly. Every little piece that you do makes a difference for the people in your life. And yeah, and I, we all know so many stories about how a single practitioner can have such a subtle and obvious influence on yes. family members. I, I also, if you, it's okay, I want to, I'd like to mention, if you want to get in touch with me, my website is sallykempton.com and my Facebook page is Sally Kempton Awakened Heart Facebook uh, slash Sally Kempton Awakened Heart, all one word. Um, and I've, I've written a bunch of books, which, which Surya mentioned earlier. Um, one called Meditation for the Love of It, which is, uh, a, a, which a lot of people find is a really great on the mat guide to all the stuff that comes up when you're, you know, when you're trying to go deeper in meditation. And one of which is called Awakening Shakti, which is about how those those energy vortexes that we call deities, the Hindu goddess deities, actually actually act as energetic energies that we can um, find in our personality in the natural world and and uh, in so many other ways. Yes, thank you, and I, I recommend that also as a meditation teacher. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This old-fashioned Lama, Lama Flintstone here is trying to learn some new and helpful happy tricks. So let's all stay in touch that way. Well, it's how, beautiful. Let, thank you, Surya. This is really delightful. And have a, have a sublime day of recognizing what love would do in every moment. Thank you very much. Let's stay in touch, Sally. Thanks for doing this together. Yes. Thank you. Okay. In a joy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Love to you, Dee. Love to you.